0: This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we make lightning protection easy. If your wind turbines are due for maintenance or repairs, install our strike tape retrofit LPS upgrade at the same time. A strike tape installation is the quick, easy solution that provides a dramatic, long-lasting boost to the factory lightning protection system. Forward-thinking windsite owners install strike tape today to increase uptime tomorrow learn more in the show notes of today's podcast
1: welcome back i'm alan hall
0: i'm dan Blewett, and this is the uptime podcast where we talk about wind energy engineering lightning protection and ways to keep your wind turbines running All right, welcome back to the Uptime Podcast. This is episode sixty-four, and we have a great guest today. Rosemary Barnes is joining us on the show. She is a consultant with Partalot, and she also runs the YouTube channel Engineering with Rosie, where she educates the public on all sorts of uh, topics in wind uh, wind energy, on wind turbine design, on blade aerodynamics. Lots of really interesting stuff, tons of uh, new videos on green hydrogen. So we wanted to have Rosie on the show to share her expertise. Um, And let me run down a little bit of her background. So she has her Ph.D. in structural design and composite materials from the University of New South Wales Canberra campus in Australia. Um, She was worked for L.M. Wind Power as a engineer. And she just has a lot of experience in a lot of different areas um, in the wind industry and as an engineer. So, Alan, what were some of your takeaways from our talk with uh, with Rosie?
1: Well, I just like the way she thinks. She thinks in terms of systems, not in terms of components. And I, I think that's a, for an engineer is a good way to think about bigger problems. And I, if you've watched some of her YouTube videos, she talks about different parts of the what I'll call the renewable energy or green energy economy, and how that can function, and whether we can do the things that are being promoted by, in some cases, politicians, and whether that really can come to reality. And if you, when you start looking as a whole system of components, uh, green hydrogen or uh, tidal power or vertical wind turbines, mm-hmm. there's a lot more to it than than you would think. And to the yeah. normal person who's not an engineer would think about, and she's an engineer and she's been around it quite a while, and and so she can connect the dots for you, and that's extremely helpful to make it make it more real Is it realizable or is it not? Or what are the what are the real costs in doing this? And it may not be just in the component itself, like a vertical wind turbine. Maybe all the other things, like how how much does it operate? Is it efficient? Can you can you scale it up? All those different aspects, and that's what makes. Her approach and, and particularly her YouTube video is very interesting.
0: Yeah. So we covered a bunch of topics in the show today. We talked about vertical versus horizontal uh, axis wind turbines, talk about blade design. We talked about blade heating, because that was one of her uh, specialties, one of her projects uh, with Ellen Wind Power. Bureaucracy in some of these uh, wind energy companies and just big, big business in general, like Alan, you've been subject to it. You know, she's been subject to it. Um, We also talk about energy transitions. That's a big passion of hers is helping companies um, find the right tech and, and do their due diligence. To help with uh, making transitions from one energy source to another. So, um, as I mentioned, she is she has her own company called Partaloat. She does consulting, helps companies with energy transitions, with due diligence, um, with engineering and wind turbine related projects. Um, and then we're obviously obviously going to put links to her company, her show, her uh, her YouTube channel, all that stuff. But without further ado, we're going to jump to our conversation with Rosemary Barnes engineer and consultant with Pardalot. All right. Well, Rosemary, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, hello from the US. This is our second guest in a row from Australia. So how are you doing?
2: <laughs> I'm doing well, thanks. And yeah, thanks a lot for having me and staying up late to, <laughs> to meet our morning.
0: Yeah, the time zone thing is crazy. It's obviously well, it's six o'clock here in the U.S. and it's eight o'clock there in Australia. But yeah, we're we're happy to be here with uh, engineering with Rosie. So let's get started. Uh, so you're a structural engineer and, you know, following your Ph.D. in composite materials and structural design, you went to work for L.M. Wind Power, which was one of the, the really interesting things that we wanted to kind of pick your brain about here today. So uh, let's talk a little bit about your time at LM in a bit, but first, you know, wind turbine blades have changed a lot. And one of the things you do really well is educate people on YouTube. And so tell us a little bit about how you got your engineering channel going. You're now, you know, you surpassed 20,000 subscribers in your first year, which is awesome. And you talk a lot about green hydrogen, you know, vertical axis versus horizontal. So um, tell us a little bit about, you know, the educational work you're doing out there for the masses.
2: Yeah. okay. so my YouTube story is a bit of a cliche. I think it's one of those lockdown projects. I found myself, um, yeah, in in between jobs at, at a weird time. So I had some time on my hands and. It all started with, um, I was living in in Jutland, you know, the peninsula in the west of Denmark and they've had wind power there for, well, that's like where they they got their first electricity actually from wind turbines back, you know, um, over a hundred years ago. And then from the seventies onwards, they have been developing wind and they never stopped. So when you're kind of driving around there in Jutland, you can see like a, the evolution, all the different crazy designs that people tried out before they all kind of converged on, um, on this three bladed um, upwind design. So I just had an idea for that one video to talk about the different designs and why the evolution went the way it did. Um, and then I just, yeah, I just enjoyed it. And I got more and more ideas from videos the longer. I was doing it and um, viewers, they comment, they tell you, oh, you know, I've always wondered this or can you make a video on that? So um, yeah, that's how the vertical axis um, videos happen because um, one particular viewer kept on asking for it and I didn't know much about it. I mean, most people working in the industry are purely working on horizontal axis turbines and don't take the um, vertical axis very seriously. So. I looked into it, found I couldn't find a good explanation of how the aerodynamics worked. Like I couldn't I couldn't get it clear in my, my brain, you know. Um, so I kind of just sketched out some, some vectors and <laughs> figured it out and thought that I would share it. Um, yeah, and I think that's how a lot of my videos work. It starts with me having a question, why is this done like this mm-hmm. or um you know how is this going to change in the future and then as i learn about it i you know i share that that same process with the the viewers
0: well and i think that's one of the things that has made youtube so endearing and made it so huge is that there's a lot of curiosity channels out there right and uh, you know there's been there's some that have been around for 10 15 years and then there's a lot of new ones who just people are just trying to answer questions that they have in their own lives just these why does this work? You know, how does this work? I'm going to just do a deep dive. on. I watched a video about why McDonald's uh, ice cream machines are always broken, which was actually a fascinating video. There's like a conspiracy behind it. It's really actually super interesting. So I, I think that like and and your channel is becoming more and more relevant now that wind power is taking off. So people, you know, this stuff's in the news. Everyone's thinking about it, especially here in the U.S. And, um, you know, I, I want to stick with the, the vertical axis stuff, because even now there's new news about vertical axis. Wind turbines is like, is this the, the, the future again? And it seems like every five or ten years someone's asking, are these the future? But yet they never seem to be. I mean, what, what is your official take on on the vertical axis versus horizontal debate?
2: Um, so I think that they, one, they can get better. They 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 should be able to get more efficient. But um, they have this, you know, really common engineering trade off between efficiency and complexity. And um, at the moment, um, no one has been able to make a turbine that is efficient without making it so complex that it doesn't last very long. Yeah. Um, and you do need to note that. No no one has made a vertical axis wind turbine yet that's making cheaper electricity than horizontal. They haven't even got remotely close. I think that's what a lot of people miss. Um, but I do think that there are certain uh, advantages to that design that will fit certain specific niches. Um, so those niches would be like distributed energy Um and especially like micro grids where you might not have like a lot of, of solar or not at all times of the year, um, places where noise is a real problem. So there, I think that we'll see them. But I, I'm, I'm like really sure that it's never going to replace horizontal axis wind turbines. It's going to fill in something that the horizontal axis turbines can't do. Um, yeah. And I think it's also related to the question of urban wind in general. Um, which, uh, yeah, it's an interesting topic because people want to see green energy being made. So that means they want to, you know, see it near their homes, near their workplaces. But the fact is that the quality of the wind really, it matters so much with mm-hmm. <laughs> with wind energy, you know, the power and the wind, it um, it's related to the cube of the wind speed. So you have twice the wind speed, but eight times as much power. So that's why we see... The big utility scale ones are getting taller and taller and they're moving offshore despite the challenges because the wind is so much better there so you can put a really efficient um turbine in an urban area and it, it only has such a smaller potential of what it could capture because the wind speed's slow. um so it's a real natural limit on on how much that can do and i think that's disappointing to a lot of people um because people really you know they really love these small turbines and and i get that as well that they're exciting for an engineering challenge but um yeah I, d- I don't think that it's going to be it's not going to replace anything yeah. yeah it might it might be the next thing but it's not going to be the only <laughs> the yeah. only thing ever yeah.
0: well and do you, and do you feel like it's one of those things where especially again people who have an engineering mind or engineers themselves feel like hey this is an untapped like i could be the person that designs the next vertical axis that hits it big like they feel like i mean what are you going to do if you're sitting in your home with horizontal right ge has a 13 megawatt behemoth so does Siemens, Gamesa. so so does wet vestus right no one sitting in their home is going to mm-hmm. outdo them but do you feel like that's part of the driver that it, it still gives people this sort of this hope that they could they could be a part of that revolution and, and spark it through their own sort of homebrew engineering
2: yeah, I think so. And I mean, I get a lot of like, every week, at least someone will um, tell me they've got a, a new more efficient vertical axis wind turbine design and um, want to send me their AutoCAD files, which, which is really cool. Um, <laughs> and I, I mean, I hope that they're going to continue to develop them uh, as well, because that's, uh, sure. yeah, I mean, you don't, it it's develops good engineering skills, you learn what the constraints are when you do it yourself. Like I had this video on my site, I made a, a gingerbread wind turbine, mm-hmm. um, right. just you know, for an end of year <laughs> project. Um, and I, I I, mean, I have an education in engineering and in wind energy, but I learned so much, especially about how important the wind resource is because by far the most important factor for that project was how windy it was gonna be on the, the test day mm. and finding the, the best, site you know i would see where the wind was coming from and find the bit of the beach that was you know angled that way that that was by far the most important thing i could put nearly any shape of gingerbread blade on there and if the wind was strong enough it would work you know so yeah i mean you really you learn a lot by by doing so i'm really excited that the vertical axis and even small horizontal axis you know these are the scale that people can can get their hands dirty and that's you know
0: that's fun well and this kind of speaks to some of the other you've mentioned in a number of your videos that you know there's the the practical and then there's the theoretical where i feel like a lot of those ideas seem to live only in the <laughs> theoretical and alan and i've talked about this on our our companion podcast on aerospace engineering right now there's a huge boom of new electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicle mm-hmm. designs. There's a new one seemingly every week from some company. They're like, hey, we're going to take 100,000 people in an EVTOL now and then we're going to do it. It's just like a crazy new thing. And it's like that seems like it's in, in one well.
2: In one, there's one, one thing well, like one I was, airplane I was, that will sit hundred people. Yeah, in. I was
0: exaggerating, but <laughs> Not right much, now, yeah. the challenge, <laughs> right now, the challenge is these companies who are at the forefront are trying to get like two people or four people to, to make, you know, the, the lift ratios work and all that stuff. And just the other day, we saw a company said, we're going to do 40. It's like, okay. Um, I mean, do you feel like there's a lot of this in engineering where it's the, the practical sometimes? lags behind or maybe not lags behind but i mean how do these theoretical models end up fleshing out is it just sort of natural selection over time and it comes down to numbers
2: it's kind of complicated i think maybe wave energy is a really good example for for this because it kind of um it's something really complicated but it started i think it started a bit too late to ever really right. get there, because you compare it to like the internal combustion engine, right? That is a super complicated mm-hmm. thing, like so complicated. If you had an electric motor first, and then someone was like, "Hey, look at this internal combustion engine," you'd be like, are "You kidding me? Look at that! All those parts. You've got explosions <laughs> right. inside there. Are you serious?" That's <laughs> <laughs> true. Like... <laughs> um, but it got there. It got there because it was the by far the best thing at the at the time, and people people copped it. But um, yeah wave energy, it's, we have other alternatives, whereas yeah, so like, wind started out so, so simple, you know, 1000s of years ago, even people were figuring out how to put sails and, you know, ro- rotate something from the, the wind to, you know, make a uh, energy or, you know, power in a form that you can use it. And it just gradually evolved, um, took off a lot uh, around, you um, the turn of the, the previous century and then again in the 70s with the oil crisis there was like a little bit more interest in in making it work for electricity um yeah and it had time that they started off very small uh, you know they were, they were really small back then you know 100 kilowatts was a, a,
0: lot. <laughs> a lot yeah
1: it
2: was an industrial kind of yeah that was that was a big thing yeah, and then they gradually got bigger and, the uh, you know, they figured things out and they gradually got more complicated. At first, you know, they were not um, they were fixed speed. They weren't changing the speed to change with the wind speed, so they were missing a lot of the energy that they could have captured. They were operating below their maximum efficiency most of the time. Um, then they, you know, got variable, variable speed. Then they could change the pitch of the blades and um, – there's all sorts of tiny little improvements that have happened since then. I mean, now it's gotten to the point where you can get an extra quarter of a percent energy over a year, then everyone's like, oh my God, wow, this (laughs) is a huge, huge innovation. Um, And yeah, not to mention going to better wind resources or so going into cold climates even though you have to heat the blades which is a pain um, we're going taller even though you know obviously it's really hard to make a very long skinny tower but it's worth it for the wind same with offshore but it will happen incrementally um and it was very reliable before they kind of moved to the next stage but then something like wave energy or vertical axis turbines even even i think um it can be really tempting to say oh, okay, so wave energy out in the middle of the ocean, there's these huge waves um, in storms. We've got to be able to capture all that and you kind of go straight out there. And what happens? You build a really expensive prototype. It gets destroyed. Um, The company's finished and then the next company comes along and and tries it. So it's a lot, you're making the job a lot harder for yourself if you have to make those big increments. Um, Yeah, and I think that, that's the the risk that especially yeah like a a backyard engineer or a home engineer, you you have the like great idea. Um, You say oh, you know, there's this wasted wind resource along the side of roads or on roofs or whatever. But until you actually make it, you don't realize all the tiny complicated details that are going to to get in your way because it doesn't just have to be efficient. It has to last a long time. Otherwise, it's you know going to be very expensive.
0: Well, and that's a great, uh, I think, point to, to transition here. I know Alan has a ton of questions <laughs> about your time uh, with LM as do I because, you know, working for a company like that where you're making these enormous blades out of, you know, high tech materials, which is obviously your expertise, um, you know, with your PhD in composite materials, you know, I mean, how, how have those blades started to evolve? I mean, you've seen them over your career. Um, but like you said, all those little tests and retests and what's failed and what's worked, um, take, can you kind of take us through just like a a little flyby of, of, you know, the design process and obviously we know there's confidentiality all that stuff, but what is it like working for a big blade manufacturer like, like LM?
2: I actually, I moved to um, a big company like LM On Purpose. Before that, I worked, before I went back to uni and did my PhD, I had been working with a lot of startups, um, not just wind, also um, some like alternative solar um, and and a few other things. And that's really fun and exciting, but a lot of those companies, it's like, I. So few of them make it to the point where they're actually making green energy. And I, I felt like, okay, I really want to go to a big company and wind is so mainstream, you know, like it really, it really works as it, it makes a good return on investment. You don't have to be a greenie to want to invest in wind energy, you know, you just have to like money. Um, So I really wanted to be part of that something that was actually making green energy and that, you know, would have been fossil fuel otherwise. And I also wanted to learn those, um, yeah, like the, the things that big manufacturers do because they're not just making one one product um, one time. You know, it has to be mm-hmm. consistent every time, cheap and consistently high quality. And if it's not, then it costs them a lot of money. So, yeah, I really wanted to learn how that, you know, huge Huge system works to yeah with with the quality and the uh, manufacturing controls and um, even you know starts right at at sourcing, making sure that your suppliers are delivering consistent quality. Um, So yeah, that was that was something that I definitely experienced. I mean, LM has I can't even keep track of how many factories, but you know definitely more than ten, maybe even close to twenty now, all all around the world. Yeah, so I I learned a lot.
1: So moving from a smaller company to a larger company, what are the the differences in the engineering styles that you saw between those two? One, it has limited resources, obviously, and you're trying to be as efficient as you can. The other one has almost unimaginable resources. What does that mean to you as an engineer as you move between those two?
2: Um, The quick answer is bureaucracy, um, and that is definitely a double-edged sword, like, I mean, if you say to someone who works in a startup bureaucracy, then they probably think, "Oh my god, this is a you know nightmare." Never worked somewhere like that. But on the other hand, the, for manufacturing especially, the bureaucracy is really like a, a safety safety net for you, or like a comforting blanket as well, because you you know that you have the uh, instructions that every every worker, every factory around the world is following the same process instruction to make things in the same way. They do the same quality checks and. Um, you need that you I as much as I mean, I have tried with my projects to bring in more and more agile methods, you know, moving fast and um, reducing documentation, you just simply can't have major manufacturing without a lot of documentation, you wouldn't you wouldn't want to try. I mean, imagine you've got um, you find out that there was a problem with, um, you know, some of the fiberglass that you're using in your blades. That means that these blades have to be right. repaired, and you don't know which blades they are in. You know, I mean, that's you, you need to you need to know exactly what's going on in, in every blade and be able to trace back when you find a problem.
0: Well, I think that's a good point because when you hear the word bu- bureaucracy, it almost has an exclusively negative connotation. No one ever talks about bureaucracy in a in a positive <laughs> light, but really what you're alluding what you're talking about is is checklists right i mean these are all the things and the procedures that have been passed down the hey these work we need to make sure we follow them and it's quality control and all that stuff and yeah i I think that's interesting where it's it's really rare that you hear the positive side of bureaucracy really all you think about is just like people stamping things and telling you to go back and get your 11 bosses to approve it (laughs) yeah but in reality that's how these big companies you know pump out like you said high quality products you know, a cost-effective price. But
2: that said, it never feels like a positive when you're working in that system. Mm-hmm. You're never like, yeah, yeah. You're a bureaucracy. You're like, oh my God, could I seriously not not just buy these bolts that I need because it's not from an approved supplier? Um, yeah, so yeah, there's there are definitely all of those those commonly known weaknesses.
1: Well, it's not the bureaucracy that you think of in terms of just management. I think you hit the nail on the head where it's like purchasing. It's all the little things like I, I do need to buy some bolts. Why does it take eight weeks to get a couple of bolts? I could get at the hardware store for this little project. I'm working on it. All the it's not just layers of management. It goes sideways. Also, it's it's hard to describe you unless they're in that environment. Did, did, did you just see much of that? And, it, and like, how do you, how does a wind turbine company that's making these gigantic projects increase incrementally with all that? St- that organization around it all the time and they have to, to, to keep up with the competitors. How are they doing that internally to, to keep moving to larger and larger blades? How is that possible?
2: Yeah. So that's, um, that's a really interesting point. And I think that one thing you've got to note is the wind turbine industry is, is at a bit of an inflection now. So um, I think that the bureaucracy is, needs to probably adapt to that in a lot of cases. So, you know, in the past, wind turbine blades are very similar to the one you made last year or the year before that. It's, you know, you have a blade, it's basically usually two, two webs, one, two or three webs, depending on the manufacturer and the length of the blade um, and fiberglass shell. And, and that was it. And so, you know, one year you're making a 12 meter blade, and then the next year it's 13 and then it's 15 and um, you know, all all the way up to 60 meters. That's pretty much what it was. I mean, approximately 60 meters. Um, and then, Recently, it's it's changed, and now we're seeing bigger changes. You see companies bringing in carbon fiber, which sounds so straightforward, but it's not at all at all straightforward. That is a massive, massive change. Um, Trying to automate some parts of the process, or um, yeah, just have you know some pre pre made parts, Um, and then you see the really big technical. Um, technology changes like the two-piece blade or you know like the longest blade in the world went from 80 something right. meters to 108 meters in in one go um and you know huge huge changes and you can't in the past you knew that your slightly longer glass blade was going to work basically the same as a previous one so you could follow the exact same process and be sure of a, a good result. And that was the right way to make a high quality product. But now when it's totally different, um, you can't, you can't work like that. You can't just say, okay, yeah. we're going to make a two piece blade and then just make a, th- a thousand of them and install them on wind turbines and think everything's going to be fine. You know, you, you have to, you have to do some testing to find out what you don't know. You, you guess beforehand what's going to be the challenges with this and you, you test for it. but when it's really new, you don't know exactly how things are going to fail or where things are going to go wrong. So you do need to have right. some some increments in there that the industry isn't used to. And it also is really hard to fit into the normal product development time frame. So all of these really big technology changes, yeah. um, super exciting for engineers working on them. And also it's, um, it's causing a big, a big change to the industry.
1: Are, are they handling that? In the aerospace world, let me give you the example in the aerospace world. So how we handled on our on aircraft was we had this little secret society of engineers that were always hidden away in these exclusive offices that were designing the next generation. Almost every aircraft company that's been around for a couple of years will, will have that set up. So they don't have to listen to all the poo-pooing from all the other <laughs> engineers about how this new thing won't won't work or why it won't work. So they get set aside in their own little world apple did that years ago for like the Macintosh, like they completely separated them from the rest of the company and, it, and that, that's a normal thing to happen but how do how do they do that on a such an industrial con, company uh, that's making large wind turbine blades I, I, do they have the, do they do that or is it the same engineers that are designing the 60 meter or designing the 108 it, it, how, how does that work internally?
2: I don't think there's such a big split. And um, pro- I expect mm. that the product development cycles are sure. much faster for wind turbine blades mm. than for aero Um yeah, it's funny actually because a wind turbine blade is on the one hand so much lower tech than, you, you know, aeroplane or um, something like that. So you might think, oh, that's less exciting. But on the mm. other hand, you don't have to go through right. this. Um, right. I mean, they have to be certified. You have to test them to make sure they're safe, but it's sure. not nearly the same as, you know, testing a passenger aircraft is going to be safe. So on that side, it's it can be much more exciting because you can, do something new and just just try it, you know, um, and not have to wait 10 years to get it approved. Um, yeah, but no, I didn't see a really big split. They do silo off um, a lot mm. of projects, especially, you know, a company um, that manufactures blades for a lot of different uh, other companies, um, you obviously right. you're not talking about <laughs> mm-hmm. one company's secrets to another one. So there's definitely you know need to know basis, and I don't know a lot of the technical problems that um, the projects I wasn't working mm. on. I, I I don't know uh, about them at all, even though I was in the in the company. Um, yeah, but I. To answer your question about, I mean, it sounds really cool that you would be shielded from people telling you that your ideas aren't going to work. <laughs> that would be that would be nice. But I felt like in the industry, it was more like, you know, you go, we had this canteen at, at work, which is a really European thing to do. And I, I loved it. <laughs> and so you'd talk to everybody at lunchtime and it was much more like, I don't think people were often telling me, oh, that." That can't work. Sometimes I mean, people would say, well, is that how long you've got to do that job? That's not nearly enough, um, <laughs> But much more often, it was like people like, oh, I've got this crazy idea for how we're going to melt ice off blades now, so let me tell you all about it. And yeah, I had probably more of, more <laughs> out there ideas rather than, um, yeah, people telling me that I was being too ambitious. So
1: That sounds like a YouTube channel, sort of, in, in the sense of, yeah, it sounds easy from the outside, but when, when you delve into the engineering, when you get down just below the surface a little bit, like... There's a lot of problems with that way of that approach or this technique. That's, I think that's what makes it interesting is that you've been in those situations where you had to explain your way out like, no, that's crazy. It won't work. Or, yeah, we can take a piece of that idea. And, yeah, it's useful. But in the big picture, it doesn't make any difference. That's the I think that's the interesting about the sort of your YouTube approach and your engineering approach is it all has to work at the end of the day. And there's more <clears throat> there's more to it than just the... Engineering design, uh, there's all kinds of aspects, and unless you think about it as a system, as a very mm-hmm. complex system, even the wind turbine is a very complex system. It may or may not be productive. It, it's it's a very interesting way to think about it, and I think it <laughs> only occurs uh, with engineers have been around a little while, and been in in your case, small companies and large companies where you can see that difference. That it, it does make a big difference, I think, in your in the way you think and the way you approach problems.
2: One thing I really like about YouTube is that I can um, listen to all these ideas because when I was working for a company, it was never about would this idea work, could it work? It was always I have no time to think about that. Like, please go away with your idea, even if it is the most, you know, the most exciting thing. I just, I just can cannot spare a tiny portion of my brain to think about that. So... Um, and that's kind of I didn't like that I found that sad at the time I'm like oh, I'm always shooting down people's um, cool innovative ideas and I I didn't like like that aspect. Um, I mean, it's part of being a company that's got to make money. And I definitely agree that that is great that wind energy does that because otherwise we wouldn't, if if it wasn't cheap, we wouldn't be at the point where, you know, all of our COVID recovery economic plans also involve renewable energy that couldn't have happened without this relentless drive to reduce costs. So I, I get that. But Yeah, now um, I am getting approached by people with my consulting work. You know, it's people that have really early stage technologies and I can help figure out if it's going to work. So I still need to, you know, um, make some judgments. I I don't want to work on something that I think can't work. I won't work on something that violates the laws of thermodynamics, you know. Like I'll help someone figure out that it does, but I don't (laughs) – I'm not going to. (laughs) Beyond that, I'll – Spend a day showing why it can never work. That's I mean, that's a good service because then they don't spend, you know, years and a lot of money. Um,
1: oh, yeah, so yes.
2: <laughs> or,
1: or applying for patents, the things you, that just doesn't make any sense. You see that all the time. And it is, you feel, as, it, as an engineer who's been around a while, you just feel sad when you come across it, like, man, that was 10 grand that you did not need to spend. I could have told you that.
2: Actually, this is a really good um, time to, to say that people do not understand that getting granted mm. a patent does not mean that your technology works. It, it doesn't mean that. It just means someone else hasn't done it before. Um, maybe because it doesn't work, it uh, violates the laws of thermodynamics or whatever.
0: Yeah, like a wind turbine made out of banana peels. Like probably hasn't been patented, probably for a good reason.
2: You know what, I bet I bet I bet mm. there would be though, because I know, you know, like with composites they're always trying to use bio um, biomaterials. So I know I've seen <laughs> like sugar sugarcane waste and stuff, so I reckon that's a good challenge.
0: <laughs> Don't steal my idea then, listeners. This is mine. It's my baby.
1: When you're working at a smaller company, did you have that feeling like at some point this isn't going to go like this? There's just no way this is going to continue just because of the nature of the thing. But there's a lot of enthusiasm.
2: Yeah, no, I, I worked on a lot of projects. I couldn't imagine a business case once they stopped getting government grants. Um, and to yeah. m- me, that wasn't very. yeah. I didn't feel like I was having a real, real impact. Um, so yeah but i am i kind of for me i kind of like oscillate between like i've got to go to a really big company have a lot of impact and then i've got to go to a small company and do something exciting and um right yeah i mean i guess the dream would be to find the small company that then grew to have um to you know really really make it with their their product but that's the thing about innovation is it, you don't know. You can yeah. never know ahead of time. <laughs> Otherwise, if you knew it was going to work, then it's not innovation.
0: I think to your to your bigger point is that sometimes having other eyes that are sort of outside the industry that are kind of fresh eyes can can really bring like new ideas to it. And I'll give you an example from my two year old nephew. My sister calls me one morning and she goes, Daniel, great idea. Ice cream salad. She's like, why is ice cream salad not a thing? Why does that not exist? And I, we eventually, 10 minutes later, came to the idea that this was not a viable commercial product. However, it had maybe some potential at first. Like, well, maybe we have a food truck and people love salad and there could be like, you know, anyway. But only a two year old could think of ice cream salad, right? If you're in the ice cream industry, no one would even dream of that. So but sometimes these outside, you know, consultants, whether they're two years old nice. or 50 years old, Ph.D. or you know, still have someone else dress them can sometimes bring a new perspective.
2: <laughs> that actually reminds me a lot of I did a lot of um a lot of baking and cooking that was um part of, you know, what I think made me uh become an engineer all those kind of experiments in the kitchen and the first time that I was allowed to cook dinner for my family I was making sausages and I had the brainwave that sausages are delicious chocolate is delicious so I'm going to make chocolate chip sausages And my mom, my mom was like, well, that's, that's a fantastic idea. Why don't you try that for your sausages? But then like, we'll make some normal ones as well in case not everyone is ready for this, you know, amazing (laughs) innovation. Um, yeah. And they were absolutely disgusting, um, (laughs) surprisingly, um, but yeah, I mean it's uh, it's experimentation, and that's I mean that's how you that's how you engineer. You try it. You have an idea. You try it, um, and it works or it doesn't. You learn something.
0: Well, so I, I want to shift back to some of the more specific work you were doing with LM. So you worked in blade heating systems. Obviously, we talked about the Texas incident here early in 2021 uh, with a couple episodes here on the show. I mean, what was your take? You know, having a lot of experience in that. Um, What was your take with that whole debacle? It was
2: really funny because, you know, that picture of the um, helicopter spraying water on a a blade went around. It was all over Twitter and everyone Mm -hmm. saying, you know, how ridiculous this is. I mean, so first of all, it wasn't in Texas, obviously. That was from a... Swedish study. But the thing that I thought was the funniest is that I have used that image so many times in presentations to customers to illustrate exactly what kind of de-icing system you would use somewhere like Texas, where you have really infrequent icing. It's just, um, y- yeah, you would never install a icing a heating system on a blade that you expect to use every 20 years or even every five years, you, you know, you need to be losing. At least five percent of your annual energy production um, to make it worthwhile, and more like ten percent is um, yeah a more more comfortable level because you add you add cost and you add a lot of complexity. So you're adding maintenance, you're adding something else that can go wrong, um, and yeah, that's I don't know. It's also funny that I mean you could think that. Making your um, wind turbines, you know, gold-plated for cold weather, was going to do anything to protect your whole system security because obviously, it could have the this cold weather could have happened mm, when there was also yeah. no wind and the wind turbines would be off regardless of whether their blades are heated or not. Like the system security needs right. to be thought of on a, a system level, not if you make every individual component um, able to withstand any kind yeah. of um, operating condition, you're going to end up with a really expensive system. So I, I think that that's like an old versus new energy kind of thing. Um, and it's something I've noticed coming into because now I'm working a lot more with a, you know, clean energy transition as a whole, not just the wind part, but so I've come into it from renewable energy, no background in the energy system. And so I don't have I'm like the, you know, the, like the two year old, I I don't have all these ideas about how you you do things, because it's obvious that the new energy system is going to look so different to the old one that I don't think it's even worth thinking about how how we did things before, for the most part. Um, yeah, but it, Specifically related to Texas, I mean, it seems obvious to everyone not in the U.S. that you need interconnectors, and that's that's how you avoid that happening again in the future. I mean, the U.S. is a huge, huge geographical place, and if you're also connecting up to Canada with Velvet Hydro, um, yeah, you can really smooth out a lot of, I mean, there's never going to be yeah. some sort of minus 20 degree freeze across the whole of the U.S. at once, so you've got some interconnectors That that can handle cold temperatures.
0: Yeah, but it's Texas. But it's Texas. They do what they want. They want their own grid. They're just going to push themselves off to sea because they're Texas.
2: I was um, talking to someone about an electric vehicle to grid project recently, and I thought how perfect that, that would be for Texas because um, my impression is that they really like their independence. And what's more independent than having your own <laughs> own electric vehicle with a battery that, I mean, you can run your house for a couple of days off a, off a battery. And, I mean, it's the, um, the, the freeze, it was kind of not, I mean, it was predicted, but it wasn't, you know, people didn't think it was enough to worry about, like, several years ahead of time. But everyone knew about it day, days ahead of time. They knew it was coming. So you had time to, you know, make sure your your vehicle was charged. Um, yeah, I I yeah. think vehicle to, vehicle to grid, that's that's a good solution for Texas.
1: <laughs> it is. Well, with Tesla building a new factory in Austin, I, I know it sounds weird to think about this way, but it's one of the thoughts I've had recently. It's like, well... There is going to be a gigantic Tesla factory there and probably a battery factory at some point. And yeah, Texas is going to become even more energy independent from the rest of the 49 other States because of that, because they will have this huge battery resource in the state. It will make a big difference.
2: Yeah. But I mean, that is a thing about, you know, new energy versus the old is that it is a lot more distributed. And um, there's, you know, huge, um, Huge events, uh, they're, they're not going to be as widespread. Like in Australia recently, we had an um, explosion in a big coal power plant. At, um, it's going to take a year to come back online. But, I mean, that, that same sort of thing doesn't happen when you have wind turbines everywhere and, you know, like a lot of distributed storage and, and stuff. So you do need to see the, the benefits as well as the, the challenges of, um, you know, this changeover
0: yeah that's that's a good point there's a lot of uh anti-fragility in having a hundred turbines that all generate a little bit of power compared to one big coal mine that could unfortunately which you know which happened blow up or completely go offline so that's a good point um with that i want to shift to offshore so obviously with your experience working on the structural components of blades and the heating systems you know there's going to be so many offshore wind farms coming up What are some of the challenges that engineers are going to be facing, you know, getting these blades prepped for some new inhospitable, you know, ocean environments?
2: So I think the the initial problem was just the the size of them. You know, the blades are so big and it starts to make things more challenging. Like, you know, if you have a root diameter of... Two meters and you can stand in it and, you know, reach, reach the sides. <laughs> but when it's five meters, you can't do that anymore. So there's some really kind of mundane um, challenges that happen to be really big and require, ex- you know, I- in the technical innovations to solve them. Yeah. And then um, the logistics of getting in there, you know, everyone's building their factories right on the water's edge so that you can just chuck it on a ship and, and drive it straight to the, the, um, the wind farm. So those ones, I think they're probably, you know, getting their their head around that and they're mostly solved. I think the hardest thing is that maintenance is um, such a pain. It's such a pain. Like I've never worked on an offshore wind farm, but one of my colleagues I was working closely with, he, he did a lot. And... Uh, just the days are so long, you know, you get one boat or one helicopter that's going to drop workers off at every turbine, and then you wait until someone comes and picks you up again. So you might only have to do a five minute job up there. But it's going to take your whole day for you know, the person doing the work, the person that's there spotting them. And I don't know how many people are involved in a rescue team offshore, but you probably got a team of four or so just even for five minutes of work. So that makes it really hard. With new technologies, things go wrong, um, and that's another reason why you know it's really good to develop your technology in the most friendly location possible, so that you can get in there and change things. Um, yeah, I think that's probably the the biggest challenge. And then of course, just everything wears out so fast in right. salt salt air. Um, you know, even stainless steel rusts, you, you've got to have, you know, higher grades of every, everything. Every electrical component has to um, probably be changed or at least have a new certification. Well, you... And um, yeah, it's just very expensive.
1: <laughs> How would icing be affected there when you get to the bigger blades and being in the water, salt water all the time as you get further and further north? What does that look like on the icing side?
2: So, so far, there aren't a lot of offshore wind farms with icing. I don't actually know of any, but definitely like in Finland, um, they have some proposals for wind farms that are offshore, but could definitely benefit from the, the icing, um, the de-icing. And I think it's the same problem, but magnified, you know, every, all your materials and everything um, have to be of a higher grade, um, steels have to be better. But then the blade heating technology, it's not that mature. It's not at the point yet. It's not as mature as you know, the rest of the wind turbine or a lot of the rest of the wind turbine technology. So it's not at the point where you just install it Mm. and then you never go there again for the next 20 or 30 years. There is maintenance involved and it's just so much more expensive. So your business case, you need a lot more icing to pay for the, you know, an extra trip out to every offshore wind turbine. it costs a lot of money, so you need to be making at least that amount back with your, with your, um, yeah. you know, being able to operate through days when it would have been icy. So, yeah, it, I mean, it's always economics.
1: <laughs> so is the solution then probably is not to just operate them when it's really icy, just shut them down for that time period? Is that the... From a cost standpoint, or an operation standpoint, is that the answer?
2: Yeah, and um, there's, you know, plenty of um, really smart people working with the uh, operating um, systems to figure out what's the, the most cost of the most profitable way to operate them. But so first of all, when there's just light icing, you can change um, the control system a little bit so that it will operate through, um, you know, some light icing. And then at the point where it's unsafe for the turbine, you need to shut it down before then because right. if it gets unbalanced or wow. if um, there's too hmm. much mass on the blades that it's not, you know, the blade structure isn't designed for that, then you need to shut it down. Um, but it's usually not not a lot. Um, you know, there's some really heavy icing sites are in like Quebec and in northern Sweden and in um, yeah Norway. Uh, it kind of gets better as you go from west to east in, in Europe, those ones you can see up to like 20% of your your uh, annual energy production reduced from icing. But most places it's, yeah, like if you think about the Alps, for example, you, you know, that's full of snow and you would think um, all those turb- turbines would need de-icing systems, but they generally don't actually um, because it's a few a few days per year. It's really complicated, actually, because it's not just the temperature. It needs to be, you know, like around zero degrees Celsius is the worst because that's when, um, yeah, there's moisture in the air, but it will freeze. Um, yeah, so it's kind of it's compl- complicated too.
0: <laughs> so I, I want to transition a little bit to, um, I guess, the balance of technology versus, you know, pushing the boundaries of technology versus optimizing what we already have. So there's a lot of very well proven, you know, wind technology. Turbines are huge offshore is working, right? Um do you think we still need to continue to push the envelope on tech or do we really sort of need to start trying to just optimize and use better what we already have?
2: I think um with wind we really need to keep trying to expand it more. So you know, we have offshore but we only have offshore for shallow shallow water for now. Um, so developing floating uh, wind turbines is really going to open up a lot of other areas. Um, so if you think about some countries, I mean, even Australia doesn't have a lot of really shallow water to put uh, offshore wind turbines in like um, Europe does. Um, countries like japan as well you know they don't have a lot of ways that they can make renewable energy anywhere that's really densely populated you know if they can get offshore then i mean it makes so much energy it's like huge huge amounts of of energy that we can put into the grid and the the best thing is that it's not correlated with with solar, really. You know, so you can say, "Oh, solar is cheaper." Um, you know, the levelized cost of energy, a cost per kilowatt hour, is cheaper for solar. So we just only build solar. It's it's one over wind, but I mean, the solar it all in one place, it all comes on together and all turns off together. Whereas wind doesn't doesn't do that. So I mean, not yeah, it's um, it I mean, it's not like it's running all the time. But a good offshore site practically are. You can get, you know, over 50% capacity factor now. Um, So I think that we do really want to be able to have much more wind. Um, That's going to make our energy transition much easier. But I do take your point in general, I think people are really focused on new technology to get us out of problems. Um, And if you you know, like a lot of politicians and some other, you know, like important thinkers are uh, saying, you know, we just need nuclear or um, to have a big breakthrough or we, we, you know, we've got hydrogen coming on now and that can do everything, so that's great. But the thing is that we we have most of the technologies that we need to get most of the emissions reduction and it matters how fast we do it. You know, if we everyone's got these... Um, Net zero by 2050 targets, it makes a big difference if we just emit at like normal up to 2050 and then drop as this, you know, whole <laughs> chunk of um, carbon dioxide in the air. If we get the electric vehicles um, happening, we get energy efficiency happening, we get. Um, all of those heat, heat pumps instead of uh, natural gas where it's easiest to do that. Um, you know, there's, there's heaps of really huge chunks that we could take off right now that would cost very little. Um, and then it doesn't matter as much if, if we, you know, take longer than 2050 even to get that last little little bit. So, um, yeah, I, I think that in general people are way too focused on coming up with a new solution rather than using the ones that we've we've got but the thing is because these technologies are mature but it doesn't mean that they'll happen on their own Um, you can't just you know transition your energy system away from you know coal power plants um, or nuclear it's just you know all this base load that you've got to use to a really flexible distributed dynamic system it it doesn't it's technically possible but and it will be economically beneficial but it's not going to happen on its own with the markets that we've got the regulations that we've got we we do need to do a lot of a lot of work but it's um it's easy and cheap compared to you know betting on um yeah i don't know cold fusion or um even even green hydrogen for everything you know um i i think that yeah we do do need to start using what we've got
0: yeah well you mentioned uh the levelized cost of energy can you speak a little more to that because i know that's something you're really interested in i mean what what do people need to know about that and how is that changing
2: yeah so uh, levelized cost of energy is basically is the like number one metric that i think most of us working in renewable energy over the last decade or so have been focused on so how much does it cost to make one kilowatt hour of electricity from from this particular source so it includes everything from um You know, like how much does it cost to manufacture, to transport, to install, um, to rent the land, um, to maintain it. All of those things are kind of, you know, like on the the top of the um, equation. And then you divide all that by how how many kilowatt hours it's going to make over its lifetime. So you get this one number of how expensive your energy is. And everyone's probably seen those charts of... um, yeah, the LCOE just coming massively down, like dropping really rapidly for solar, um, not as rapidly for wind, but still, you know, very, very nice cost reduction or nice from the point of view of the consumer and not from the point of view of the manufacturer, I guess. Um, yeah, so that's been the real focus of the last decade, and that that's good when we only have 10, 20% variable renewables, you can have. Yeah, the cost is the most important thing, but now we get to the point where you see in the electricity markets, like if you watch what the wholesale price is, and California's a famous example. They've got their the duck curve, where the cost of electricity it actually um, it's lowest in the middle of the day when there's all this solar online, um, because you know it all it all comes on together. There's heaps of it. It, it brings the price way down. But then as soon as the sun starts to set, start, you get this massive spike in, in price because, yeah, you, um, you've you got a lot of cheap energy, but it's not when and where you need it. And so I think that that when and where you need it part of the equation is going to become, obviously, it's going to become more and more important as you get more variables in your system. So that's why everyone's so focused on energy storage now um, and then other things like well, less exciting things like interconnectors and demand flexibility and energy efficiency. Um, you know, all of those things make our problem much smaller. Um, yeah, so I, I, I'm personally most excited by, yeah, like demand flexibility. I'm really, really excited by that. But it's, it's not so sexy as, um, yeah, as hydrogen or something. <laughs>
1: See, this is this is the this is the part I like about uh, Rosie's YouTube channel, is because you don't think about those details in a, in an energy distribution system or especially an electric grid, of all the fine details that really matter, like solar goes offline at about six thirty, but there's just a demand when everybody comes home at six thirty, and so it's not as valuable, or uh, how you connect and disconnect different parts of the grid at certain times, and what. What kind of uh, chaos you create when you do those things? Those are really important. And those those details get lost, right? Because we yeah. we,
0: see... we need Netflix more than ever <laughs> with COVID. <laughs> <Right>. After six thirty, <630. laughs> solar cannot supply. Got that right, America with their Netflix. <laughs> that's <habit>. exactly right. <laughs> yeah. You maybe run a Netflix off your car, and Tesla's got the answer for mm-hmm.
1: that, <laughs> right? But yeah, that, I mean that those are that's the real part of this, which is in your day-to-day life how much do you think about where your energy is coming from and can you get it and if you live in california you start thinking about that a lot if you don't live in california you don't right and so having been out in california uh, a lot recently because my son was out there uh you realize like ooh. You know they're having blackouts, they're having brownouts, and that's a continual thing. And they're having huge, massive forest fires at the same time. So you start to think, wow, the grid—I really rely upon this electric grid. And if part of it goes offline, hey, I don't have refrigeration, I don't have air conditioning, I don't have lights, I don't have—I can't cook. Uh, those things become more and more important, and that's where I think when Rosie gets on the YouTube channel starts and, and explains those details. It makes it real. It makes it real to the average person. I think that's what's that's what's really cool about it.
0: Well, and it's also I think hard for people to get access to someone with like the level of education and experience that you have on YouTube. Like YouTube feels very impromptu, um, but for someone to be able to ask an actual engineer who actually respond to their comments is is super rare and also really cool. So I think you're doing a a great service (laughs) for people out there who. I just, they, you know, ice cream salad all day and they want someone to just slap it out of their hands <laughs> say, Sorry, you know, Daniel, uh, or, or, or maybe give them a gold star. You don't know. Yeah, true. Um, so, Rosie, as someone who's, you know, in the industry and you've got your consulting business uh, part of load, um, tell us about what you're doing and how companies can connect with you and what your mission is.
2: Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, so I started up an independent consulting company and I'm working on energy technology development, um, basically focusing on two sides. On the one hand, if there's a company that has a technology that they want to develop, then I can help them figure out, you know, a fast and cheap way to do that. And especially um, especially when it comes to the wind industry, avoid some of the, the traps because, you know, wind, it seems like it's really similar to... Um, you know aero industry but there's some really different it's a really weird operating environment let's just say that way if you put something in a wind turbine and especially on the blade there's some forces there that um yeah it's not like normal components aren't aren't designed for that so you have to be be aware of that when you're developing a technology um so yeah i do on That help with the technology development, and then on the other hand, with companies that are investing in energy technologies, so whether it's um, a wind farm developer or, yeah, just, um, you know, venture capital or any any kind of investment company, helping them do due diligence, you know, is is this technology feasible? Um, What kind of milestones should they be hitting with their development to, you know, make sure that we're, you know, moving in the right direction? Um, banks want to want to feel sure that a technology is going to last, uh, you know, a full lifetime before they will finance. And then what happens when there's problems with the technology? Oh, your blades have cracks in them. Um, and, you know, are they being fixed in the way that that you think is like, can you feel sure that these blades are being brought back up to you know the way that they should be. So that's yeah, that's basically the range of, of services that I'm that I'm doing.
0: So it sounds like you can be a good intermediary for companies as they try to solve and interpret some of their problems.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's that's it. Um yeah, and some of the technology companies that I'm working with are definitely like I, I feel some um, some ownership for the technology too because it's nice. Um, that's the creative part of it for me, and uh, probably the most exciting kind of engineering in a way is when you've like you've got technology, it's an idea, could it work, and then you you know like you, you work with it and. You start to feel like they're, you know, children by the end once you've, uh, you know, guided this this poor little technology (laughs) through all of the hazards. Um, Yeah. yeah, So I I like that part of it too.
0: Well, can you give our listeners ways to follow up with you on the web? I know you have a website and you're active on LinkedIn. Obviously, uh, we'll link to all of the, you know, the places you can follow up with Rosie. But what are the main channels that you've got?
2: Yeah. So uh, YouTube is Engineering with Rosie. um, And then I'm on LinkedIn a lot. It's Rosemary Barnes. And my consulting website is PilotConsulting.com.
0: Awesome. So yeah, so definitely check out the show notes, whether you're on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Or on YouTube, we'll have links where you can click right through and get in touch with Rosie. So, Rosie, thanks again for coming on the show. It was a great conversation. And we might be knocking on your door and we have more questions that we can't answer on the show down the road.
2: Yeah, I would love to. Uh, love to be invited back. So thanks a lot for having me. It's been really
0: fun. All right. Well, that's going to do it for our episode of the Uptime Wind Energy podcast. Be sure to check out the description, whether you're on iTunes, YouTube, Spotify, wherever, and be sure to subscribe to the show, share it with a friend, and we will see you here next time on the Uptime Wind Energy podcast. Operating a profitable wind farm is all about mitigating costs, minimizing risks, and being efficient with maintenance, repairs, and upgrades. It's incredibly expensive to send a team of rope access technicians up tower to make even simple repairs. We also know how costly lightning damage can be, requiring inspection, repairs, and downtime for even minor lightning strikes. Maximize the time efficiency of your techs and prevent future lightning damage by installing our strike tape LPS upgrade the next time your crews are going up on ropes. Learn more in today's show notes or visit us on the web at weatherguardwind.com.